0: You're in a packed concert hall in downtown Cairo in the late 1940s. On the stage, an elegant woman stands before an orchestra. She wears a full length dress and clutches a handkerchief close to her breast. Her long hair is tied in a modest bun behind her head, but her fine jewelry suggests a woman of wealth. She stands perfectly still as she sings. But when she reaches a musical cadence that touches a nerve with the audience, they can barely contain themselves. There is no mistaking this as a performance of Egypt's immortal Um Kulthum, without question, the greatest Arab singer of the 20th century. Hello, Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRX. This hip-deep edition, Um Kulthum, the voice of Egypt. You've heard me sing the praises of this extraordinary artist before. Well, today we're going to convince you. And to help us out, we have Harvard University's Virginia Danielson Author of a brilliant Uncle Thum biography, also called The Voice of Egypt.
1: I've been asked before to try to find some kind of cultural equivalent in the Western world for Uncle I mean, It's exceedingly hard to do, partly because the separation between classical art and popular art is not so great.
0: Biographer Virginia Danielson.
1: If you took a musician with the competence of an Ella Fitzgerald, with the pure musical chops and ability in terms of rendition and improvisation and combine that with a public persona such as Eleanor Roosevelt, a very dignified public figure who clearly had the good of the masses at heart in most of her enterprises. And then you give that public figure the audience of an Elvis Presley, you will have Uncle Thun.
0: Wow, that's serious. Ella, Eleanor and Elvis, all in one amazing package. Maybe you're starting to get the picture whom Kulthum lived and performed through tumultuous times, British colonial rule and the coming of independence in Egypt, the partition of Palestine, a succession of wars, and fierce debates about how Islamic societies should and should not look to the West for inspiration. All that intensity seemed to rub off on Umm Kulthum. But before we hear her story, I want you to listen to her voice. Open your ears and your heart and experience its sheer emotional power. All the music in this program was recorded in Egypt, mostly between 1926 and 1960. Sometimes the audio quality isn't all we'd like it to be, but the performances, my God, just listen. This is Adith al The Speech of the Soul, a song she performed near the end of her life. Egypt's Om Kothum from a 1967 performance of Adif Al-Khul, with words by Pakistani poet Mohamed Iqbal, and music by the great Egyptian composer Riyad Al-Sumbati. Georges Colinet here. You're listening to Afropa Worldwide's Hip Deep Edition, Om Kothum, the voice of Egypt. Let's go back to the beginning of Um Kulthum's remarkable life, to the Nile River Delta in the year 1904. Here is biographer Virginia Danielson.
1: Um Kulthum was born in a relatively small Egyptian village in the Delta. Uh, It was an agrarian community, and her father was a functionary of the local mosque, it was a very poor family, subsistence living, and her exposure to music came in two ways. One was the singing that her father and the men in her family did at local occasions, and also the mayor of the village had a record player, and everyone came and listened to records or brought records, and he made this available so that anyone could hear what was being produced. In um, Normally in Cairo, even in the aughts, of the century, there was a thriving recording industry, and so one could hear all kinds of things on records that were purchased in Cairo or in the major cities and then brought back to villages.
0: Among the voices young Umkul heard during her youth was that of her future teacher, Abu Alila Muhammad, heard here in a rare 1912 recording. <laughs>
2: I hope
0: By the time he recorded in Cairo, Abu Alila was singing love songs with instrumental backing. But his roots lay in religious music performed by unaccompanied singers, like the songs Uncle Foom's father taught her. Virginia Danielson describes these pieces as Arabic hymns.
1: Her father spent some time in the house teaching her brother to sing along because the norm for performance was for there to be a solo singer, which was her father, and then a group of men who would act as backup singers for the most part. And there were usually no instruments in these performances. The repertoire was largely religious music that was appropriate to any kind of a celebratory occasion. And so he was teaching his son to be a backup singer and she learned the songs and started to sing along. And what her father discovered was that she had an amazingly strong voice. Actually, a better voice than her brother did. So at one point when her brother was sick, her father asked her to come along and sing in his place. And that's how she got her start.
0: Ah, yes, a familiar story. The young upstart steps in and steals the show. Um Kofum spent the next ten years performing at social occasions around the Delta with her father and family. Her talent was clear, and many encouraged the family to seek their fortunes in Cairo, then in boom times after the end of World War I. She made the move in 1922, largely at the behest of Abu Alila Muhammad. This brilliant musician was now suffering from diabetes. He was blind, depressed, and near the end of his days. They say he committed suicide by eating an overdose of sweet pastry. Hm, what a way to go. But for his last and greatest student, the young Uncle Thum, things were just beginning.
1: Uncle Thum came to Cairo as a country girl and basically the clothing, the manners, the hairstyles that she had and were familiar to her were very countryfied. The repertory she sang was viewed as countryfied. It was familiar to urban audiences, but seen as old and unsophisticated. And in the midst of all this, she appeared with her brother dressed in Bedouin garb, which was really hilarious because that would not have been the family dress at all. I mean, it was this costume as much as anything else was. Uh, But again, to kind of emphasize her connection to the land and to the history of Egypt rather than her connection to the urban stage and the modern entertainer.
0: By the 1920s, Egyptians of all classes resented British colonial rule. The era of Egypt for Egyptians was beginning, and Um Kulthum's link with rural life and history would soon be rewarded handsomely. First, though, she had a few things to learn. For starters, the Bedouin outfit had to go.
1: The first few years that Uncle Thum spent in Cairo were very much learning years. She had to adjust to the norms of the city. She wanted the most lucrative performing opportunities. At the time that she started making records, she was confronted with the necessity of using the instrumentalists that the record company provided because that was their expectation and they were calling the shots. At first, she was very much a novelty, and she was appreciated as a novelty. Literary figures who were later asked about her remember saying to each other, have you seen the Bedouin singer? She's got this amazing voice. So the novelty lasted for a certain period of time, but then critics in the newspapers and the magazines, of which there were many, said, well, you know, her repertory varies from religious songs to these cheap little ditties that people request. She doesn't look very good, her dresses aren't so much, the voice is powerful, but she can't do a lot with it, she doesn't have a lot of musical skills.
0: They said worse than that, one critic compared Um Thun's male accompanist to stone idols whose ugly voices roar like the sound of a screaming camel in distress. <laughs> Not exactly an auspicious start, but Um Thun learned fast. In addition to her musical instruction, she began socializing with wealthy Muslim women, studying their manner, dress, language and speech. In 1926, she unveiled a new stage show. Gone were the camel-voiced relatives, and in their place, a tact or instrumental ensemble of fine musicians, some of whom would remain with her for the next 40 years. Here's a recording they made for the gramophone label in 1926.
3: I'll
0: Thum, displaying vocal mastery at the tender age of 22. Amazing. Georges Codinet with you on Afropop Worldwide's Hip Deep. This edition, The Voice of Egypt with author Virginia Danielson. Incidentally, you can read our complete interview with Virginia Danielson and see vintage photographs from her book about Umkul Thum on our website, afropop.org. Like all great Arab musicians, Umm Kulthum was a brilliant improviser. But her inventions were no flights of intellectual fancy, the sort of thing you would hear from an oud or kanun player. For her, improvising has to do with the poetry she was singing. She always used her voice to help listeners experience the meaning of the words.
1: Umm Kulthum's voice was a very strong voice and what's particularly important is that it remains strong from the bottom of its range to the top. Issues of soprano, alto, tenor, bass don't apply. One sings in what a Westerner might call chest voice from top to bottom. Coloristic variety was introduced by such things as falsetto, but only if it were used ornamentally, if one had to use falsetto just to get the note. That's a flaw, but as an ornamental device, falsetto could be very beautiful, and also an intentional hoarseness, or baja that implied great emotion. And this was also a quality that, if deployed properly, was very, very evocative.
0: This is a song from the film Salama, and if you heard the way Um Kulthum's voice broke on that high note, well, that was no accident. That's baha. Another quality Um Kulthum used to great effect was hana, what Virginia Danielson describes as sweet nasality.
1: Moving around from one resonance to another was very, very expressive. And if you listen carefully to... Omkotthum's um, singing many songs would manifest this, if not all of them. She was able to manipulate resonances very quickly. If one tries to do it oneself, one can find out how hard it is to shift rapidly from one place of resonance to the other, and to create this wide coloristic palette that she had. Let's
0: This piece, Kasamatni, or You Defeated Me, was composed by Mohammed Al-Kasabji, a lifelong friend of Umm Kulthum's. As time went by, though, she mostly turned his compositions down because they went too far in the direction of Western harmony. In the 1930s, Umkul Kulthum hit her stride in collaboration with composer Zakaria Ahmed and poet Bayram Al-Tunsi, rich with Egyptian folk melodies and references to daily life, their distinctly colloquial songs fed the growing mood of Egyptian nationalism.
1: The song lyrics had high impact, and they tended, in Bedum's case, to draw small elements of colloquial expression right into the songs. They were very terse. The characters that emerged in the songs were sort of local characters, women waiting for men who never showed up, funny characters from the rural environment, They drew heavily on these sorts of images, and then the musical composition relied on melodic modes that could not be easily harmonized, that were just bedrock Egyptian, popular Egyptian melodic modes. And so the result was this wonderful, highly colloquial repertory. It was very deceptive because Zechariah Ahmed's songs sounded as though anyone could sing them. And people would try to sing along with them, and they they sounded very simple. But the the problem was getting from beginning to end, because when you tried to do that, you would find that, in fact, the song had a very wide range, that it required a lot of vocal manipulation that an average person couldn't easily do. And then when you added improvisation to that, the whole thing... Just became a tour de force that an amateur would just give up on. One good example of that that remains very popular is the song Ganili Shwaya Shwaya, which means Sing to Me a Little Bit. <laughs>
3: خليني أجلال الحان تتماين لها السمعين وترفرف لها الأغصان النرجس مع الياسمين والسافر بها الرقبان طويل البواد تطوي شوي 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 شوي, شوي غني لغني وخد عيناي المهنة حياة الروح اسمعها على التشفي والداوي كبد مجروح تحضار الأطبة فيه وتخلي ظلام الليل في عيون الحبار الغي شوي 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 شوي, شوي غني لغني Each way you run, you'll
0: Once again from the film Salama, Oum Kulthum. The Egyptian diva starred in six motion pictures between 1935 and 46. but her greatest impact came from the monthly radio concerts she performed before live audiences. On the stage, five-minute compositions like the one we just heard could blossom into 30-minute extravaganzas, and her later pieces were known to extend for an hour or more. Um Kulthum's great works when we continue with Virginia Danielson and the voice of Egypt. And remember, you can read our complete interview with Virginia Danielson and much more on our website, afropop.org. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRX. In the 1940s, Cairo became home to foreign soldiers fighting in World War II. The war only intensified the debate in Egypt about national and cultural identity. Umm Kulthum remained staunchly loyal to the Egypt for Egyptians philosophy, including the old idea that a singer should interpret poetry. She tipped the scales even further away from Western influences when she chose to sing Kasida, classical poems that go back at least 1,000 years. Umm Kulthum learned to sing these complex pieces as a child in her village, but Qasida were not considered popular entertainment in Cairo in 1940. Here's Virginia Danielson.
1: Poetically, they tend to depend on historical and religious allusion They tend to be jam-packed with meaning. They often use words that might sound to an English speaker the way Shakespearean English would, syntactical structures and vocabulary that are just not very familiar. And so the entire language was perceived to be more remote than other contemporary literary forms. So with the religious songs of the 1940s, Oum also brought back the genre Qasida, and people told her it would just never work, that no one was going to sit through this, they would become bored, that it would not be seen as entertainment, and in fact, just the opposite happened.
0: Umm Kulthum now began working with perhaps her greatest composing ally, Riyad al sunbati Together with poets like Ahmed Rami and Ahmed Shawki, they transformed Qasida into elaborate new classical creations that drove the Cairo public wild.
3: ولد الهنا فالكائنات
1: performance throughout the Arab world historically is a very interactive art. In the context of sung poetry, the expectation would be that a singer would deliver lines of a poem to an audience who would immediately respond to the effectiveness of the delivery in terms of perhaps the choice of melodic mode, the engagement of the voice the various attempts to bring up meaning of the line, and the audience would respond immediately. When that happened, the artist would very often stay in that place in the poem for a period of time, working with that section of the poem until the audience had had enough or until the singer ran out of ideas or whichever happened first, and then move on. Now, this is basic to Arab musical performance. Whether it's instrumental or vocal, the interactiveness is a hugely important, historically rooted aesthetic so that the audience has a major role in the outcome of the performance, um, in its length and also in its shape. This is very, very different from European classical music where however much you like Beethoven's fifth, it ends when it ends and there's nothing you can do about it.
3: Mm دين يشيد آية في آية دين
1: performer to do this because um, not every audience was polite, not every audience was sober, not every audience had the kind of knowledge to make appropriate responses happen. One has to remember also that public concerts were new to the Arab world at the turn of the 20th century and that they tended to include lots of men young men particularly who were sort of out of the familial controls that weddings and other kinds of celebratory events would involve and so they behaved worse
0: you may recall our program about tarab musical ecstasy and arab music if not well you can hear it on our website afropop.org including professor aj rassi's remarkable analysis of audience participation in an Um umkul thum performance um Kufum’s concerts now took place before as many as 800 people. And if it was the first Thursday of the month, many more shared the experience, sitting around the radio and drinking tea at home. The concert began around 9.30 and could easily last until 3 in the morning. During all that time, she would perform just three songs, separated by long breaks, during which she received favoured guests backstage. Let's hear an excerpt from a popular Umm Kulthum song called El Alba Yeshak Kolgabil," or The Heart Loves Everything Beautiful. It's an unusual combination of colloquial poetry, not Qasida, by Bayram al and lively neoclassical music by Riyad Al-Sunbati. on Afropop Worldwide's Hip-Deep Edition, The Voice of Egypt. With me today, Um Kulthum biographer, Virginia Danielson. Virginia is going to tell us about one of the best love songs in Um Kulthum's repertoire, Al-Atlal, which means traces.
1: If you simply play the very beginning notes of Al-Atlal, you will evoke the memory of Um Kulthum. Atlal is an interesting composition. It was written by a very neo-romantic poet, Ibrahim Nagy, in 1949. Um, Nagy was a poet whom uh, a well-known literature scholar has said never had a political thought in his life. Very, very romantic, very interested in sort of romantic geographical depictions of deserts and whatnot. Atlal also has lines that have been carried by audience members and by uncle film herself in some context into very different political places than the poet the author of the lines ever went one of the lines um give me my freedom set free my hands became a sort of an outcry in the mid-60s against the repressions of the nasser government against the horrible political position that um, many Arabs felt themselves to be in internationally, particularly with the defeat of 1967. And the sentiments of this initially highly romantic poem were basically moved by the audience into much different contexts to give expression in an oblique way to many, many different and more dramatic political feelings. Athini horiati itla idayin Give me my freedom, set free my hands.
0: On Afropop Worldwide, I'm Georges Collinet. Virginia Danielson mentioned that the line, give me my freedom, set free my hands, became a rallying cry against the government of Gamal Abdel Nasser. That was not the poet's intention, and probably not Umm Kulthum's either. But the truth is, from the moment Nasser came to power as president of an independent Egypt in 1952, Umm Kulthum was closely tied with his regime, In fact, it was Nasser who helped arrange a long-anticipated collaboration between Umm Kulthum and Mohammed Abdel Wahab, the only Egyptian musician who could rival her grandeur. More about that in a moment. Funding for Pop worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. And from PRX affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. As far back as 1935, Muhammad Abdel Wahab and Uncle Thum were described as the high priests of Egyptian music. But it wasn't until 1964 that they finally worked together. That's mostly because they didn't see eye to eye about music and culture. Abd al was interested in new forms and new ideas. He used Western instruments, musical notation, and European harmony. Meanwhile, Umm Kulthum stuck with reviving and reinventing Egyptian and Arab forms. Her grand kasida were now considered part of turat, or Arab tradition, an honor few musicians have ever experienced during their lifetimes. Creating and rehearsing a new song now took Umm Kulthum a full year. She was intensely involved with every step from choosing and editing the poem to guiding the composer as he shaped his ideas. When she rehearsed her ensemble, nothing was written down. Umm believed that the musicians played better if they learned by ear. For his part, Abd al-Wahhab was equally wary of sacrificing any control over his work.
1: She was very worried about being controlled by him and he by her, and there was just all kinds of effort that went into the negotiation that finally brought them together. What happened was, an interesting melding of styles that was palatable to some people and not to others. They produced ten songs together, and the songs, in a very general way, are characterized by the standard abdul Wahhab compositional structure, which involved many sections of music, one after the other, often distinguished by rhythmic contrasts and that drew on many Western instruments, Western musical styles, including jazz styles, barn dance styles, anything that he could absorb and reuse. When the singer began her part, the instrumentalist fell back into an accompanimental role and acted as a Tacht would have acted with much smaller number of instruments following the singer as she sang the poetry in the same way that she always had. To some ears, this was remarkably incompatible. To other ears, it was remarkably innovative. One of the great examples that brings lots of styles together is Amal Hayati, Hope of My Life. It's a highly sectionalized piece with dramatically contrasting sections. As an older woman, and in the political environment of the 60s, Uncle Thum was seen as being out of touch with the concerns of daily life. And her concerts and her repertory were seen as invitations to sort of forget about the cares of the world or the cares of life and lapse back into a kind of an old-fashioned forgetting of contemporary concerns. To many intellectuals, this was objectionable. After the devastating defeat of the Egyptian army in 1967, Om Kothom conceived the idea of using her repertory and herself to raise money to replenish the treasury of Egypt. And so she had already scheduled a concert in Paris, which she'd never performed outside of the Arab world before, but had been persuaded to come to Paris, partly because there was a large Arabic-speaking population there. She decided that this concert would be the first of the concerts for Egypt. And what she did is she would travel around within Egypt to cities and villages, and then also to many not just Arab countries, but also Muslim countries, giving concerts, the proceeds of which would go to the Egyptian treasury. And she would take payment in all kinds. I mean, women, if they didn't have cash, very often gave jewelry. And all told, between 1967 and 1970, she was said to have raised more than 2 million Egyptian pounds, which was a substantial figure. That solidified her persona as a representative of Arab culture of the 20th century.
0: It certainly did. When Umm Kulthum ultimately died in 1975, an estimated 4 million people attended her funeral.
1: Umm Kulthum's funeral was described as being bigger than Gamal Abdel Nasser's and involving millions of people. It was a state funeral. The funerary prayers were to be said at one of the important central mosques. Then the casket was, in fact, to be carried to cars, where it would be taken to the funerary grounds and final prayers said there. What, in fact, happened is that the public, which had filled the streets, took the beer from its official carriers and carried it themselves all over Cairo for hours and hours and hours, heading in the direction of the burial grounds, but... Um, in their own way. Eventually, the Sheikh of al-Azhar spoke over the radio to people and asked them to please bring the beer to its resting place because she was, in his description, a good Muslim who would want it to have been buried promptly, according to custom. She eventually was buried. But it was a dramatic outpouring of public mourning.
0: Unbelievable. Afropop listeners, when my day comes, will you show that kind of love? Well, I hope so. And I also hope you'll go to afropop.org and read all of what Virginia Danielson had to share with us about Umkul Kulthum. They are fascinating stories we couldn't get to in this program. Thank you, Virginia. It's been delightful and enlightening to pass an hour with you. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research, co-production for this program by Banning Air. Banning also edits our website, afropop.org, where you'll also find information, photographs, and extensive um discography. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, including radio programs and our Afropop Close-Up Podcast series. And don't forget to join us next week for another edition of Afropop Worldwide Our chief audio engineer is Michael Jones This program was mixed at Studio 44 in Brooklyn by Michael Jones Benning Air and C.C. Smith edit our website, afropop.org Our director of new media is Ben Richmond And I'm Georges Collinet.